Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Manhattan Beach was a thriving African-American community a century ago, but it no longer exists. As the 20s moved forward and there was more white interest in uh, the beachfront, the battle against black ownership at Manhattan Beach and business ownership at Manhattan Beach increased. We'll discuss what one historian sees as the birth of modern tourism in Florida. Modern tourism began with the state's exhibit at Chicago's Century of Progress World's Fair in 1933. And we'll talk about the innovative pioneer citrus grower, Lou Jim Gong. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When jazz pianist Sugar Underwood played in Manhattan Beach a century ago, it was a thriving African-American beach community with a boardwalk, pavilions, and black-owned businesses and homes. The community no longer exists. Tim Gilmore is an author and historian who writes about the Jacksonville area. Manhattan Beach was the first beach, actually, before the better-known American beach uh, in uh, the Jacksonville area. Uh, the first beach for Black beachgoers during Jim Crow, uh, Florida. And uh, it absolutely, it had, you know, uh, you could rent bathing costumes, as they were called. Uh, you know, there was music, there were, uh, there were places to eat, there was lodging, uh, there were these big wooden pavilions that uh, businesses were set up in. And so uh, some of the, the better known musicians from Jacksonville in the area, there's a, someone named Sugar Underwood who actually recorded some songs uh, played out there. And it was, uh, you know, it was the place to go at the beach uh, for black people in the early 20th century. Industrialist Henry Flagler built a series of hotels along his Florida East Coast Railway, including the Continental Hotel near Jacksonville. Many of Flagler's railroad workers were African Americans, and he helped them to establish Manhattan Beach. Once Henry Flagler had built uh, most of his big hotels, really, and the railways into Florida, he set aside some uh, oceanfront, it was really wasteland, you know, uh, for his black railroad workers. And that was the beginning of Manhattan Beach. And it became much more than that. It became, 
you know, the seaside resort for Black Jacksonville and, and the area around it. Um, Marsha Dean Feltz, in her book about American Beach uh, that she published in 1997, talked about uh, her, uh, uh, one of her relatives' memories of Manhattan Beach, and she said that they would take trains out to uh, the beach, and she had a hard time, Marsha Feltz had a hard time believing uh, her relative when she said that Black people would actually sit in the front in these trains uh, until she found out that uh, they rode in the front cars and white people rode in the back of the cars uh, because the soot and cinders and smoke from the train's engine uh, would blow back behind them and settle heaviest on the, the closest cars. But that was the origin of Manhattan Beach, and it soon became, the, you know, the place to be, the, the resort for Black Northeast Florida, really. Henry Flagler supported African-American land ownership in Manhattan Beach, the wealthy land developers who followed Flagler had other ideas for the property. Flagler set the land aside, set this, this particular beachfront aside, uh, but uh, he did not own all of it. Uh, there, there was Black ownership here, and that became the battle over the next um, probably two decades, uh, starting in, in the 19-teens, actually. So, um, you know, Black people owned property here. They owned businesses here. Uh, it was a Black-owned and operated resort, and uh, it was successful. So while Flagler was uh, supportive of this effort, uh, the new Atlantic Beach Corporation, which would develop, uh, you know, the town of Atlantic Beach uh, in the 1920s, uh, the Atlantic Beach uh, Corporation started a little before that, was, was not supportive of Black ownership at all. And the more white developers and financiers became interested in uh, the oceanfront and in developing, you know, land at the oceanfront, uh, the more heated the battle became until actually it became, it became pretty ugly. Historian and author Tim Gilmore says that Harcourt Bull was an attorney who worked to bring in wealthy white investors and stop beachfront land sales to African Americans. So Harcourt Bull is a pretty interesting character. He left a lucrative law practice in New York uh, to come down to Florida and be legal counsel for the Atlantic Beach Corporation. Uh, and, you know, uh, Flagler had developed this hotel and uh, there was this new community at the beach that would become the town of Atlantic Beach. Uh, in the 1920s, Harcourt Bull would be appointed the first mayor of Atlantic Beach. And, you know, it's interesting, some of what Bull says uh, can be taken a couple of different ways, but uh, I have to acknowledge local Jacksonville University uh, instructor Brittany Cohill, who's done a lot of research into this, uh, and she gave a presentation um, sometime back to the Historical Society here in Jacksonville. Uh, and she wrote, uh, it was Bull's policy to cease selling Manhattan Beach property to African Americans. The Black community could no longer endeavor to own an uninterrupted stretch of coastline in the Jacksonville area. As other white investors acquired surrounding property, efforts increased to remove the African-American enclave completely. And that's exactly what happened. Starting in 1915, there was a woman named Capitola Washington. 
uh, who, uh, and she was a black woman who was purchasing land uh, from Flagler at Manhattan Beach. And she had a hard time getting the deed for her land. So she, uh, she got herself a lawyer, uh, Richard P. Daniel, who was a well-known um, white supporter of black causes at the time. And uh, she demanded the deed for her recently purchased property. And there's a letter from uh, James Payne, who was assistant secretary of the uh, Atlantic Beach Corporation, a 1914 letter. And he wrote Harcourt Bull, the Mayport Terminal Company agreed that they would withhold the deeds from these, and he uses the N-word, and give us the chance to purchase their contracts, but we have never availed ourselves of the opportunity. So this battle is already being waged in these stark racial terms. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's kind of shocking and yet not shocking when you know the history to see uh, you know, the, uh, that, that kind of blatant racism and correspondence uh, from, uh, you know, within this company. White investors continued buying up property and businesses in Manhattan Beach until African Americans were forced out by the mid-1930s. As the 20s moved forward and there was more white interest in uh, the beachfront, the battle against Black ownership at Manhattan Beach uh, and business ownership at Manhattan Beach uh, increased. So in 1929, there is, uh, there's an issue of something called Beach Life Magazine. And Harcourt Bull has a statement, makes a statement in Beach Life Magazine uh, about uh, the northern area of Atlantic Beach toward Manhattan Beach. And he says, uh, he calls it attractive land that is owned by a wealthy syndicate, which is waiting for the psychological moment to come when they will develop the track as Coral Gables or Hollywood was developed. He says that moment may be six months away or it may be a year away, but come it will and it will come soon. And that uh, he's actually referring to uh, white financiers, including Ed Ball, um, one of the wealthiest men in Florida and uh, the brother of G. Ball DuPont, uh, who was buying a property at Manhattan Beach. And what they would develop would not be that area. They were buying that property and um, trying to exclude Black ownership, but actually this would lead toward uh, Ed Ball's financing of Stockton-Watley and Davin's development of Ponte Vedra Beach to the south. So there's a, there's a 1933 letter where Bull's associate, William H. Rogers, writes, Edward Ball contacted me at noon today and said that he had just acquired title to the Manhattan Beach property. He would like to buy from us a strip of land about a thousand feet deep immediately behind his Manhattan Beach property. He would also like to get us to cooperate with him in excluding the Negroes from Manhattan Beach insofar as possible in order to get them entirely off the oceanfront. So uh, this is uh, this is 1933, and this is uh, in preparation for more white development uh, and exclusive development, uh, and most specifically, the development of Ponte Vedra Beach to the south. Manhattan Beach was not all about fun in the sun. Humanitarian Eartha White had a facility for sick children there. By the mid-1930s, like most African-American patrons of Manhattan Beach, Eartha White relocated her facility to American Beach. Tim Gilmore. Of all of the activities going on at Manhattan Beach, uh, Eartha White, uh, you know, certainly the greatest 
philanthropist uh, and humanitarian leader uh, ever to come from Jacksonville, um, and one of the most important humanitarian leaders in Florida's history, uh, started something called uh, the Fresh Air Camp, and this was for tubercular children. Uh, and this was at Manhattan Beach, and uh, this was the idea of exactly what's embodied in and the title that there is was uh, you know something healing about uh, the air at the beach, and um, this that idea really coincided with a lot of this is uh, a little bit later, but coincided with a lot of Victorian medical, um, sometimes pseudo medical thinking about things like that, but Eartha White. Uh, you know, started a tubercular hospital in, back in Jacksonville, uh, amongst all the other things that she started an old folks home and an orphanage and uh, uh, finally the Clara White mission, which she named after her adoptive mother. Uh, and when uh, Manhattan Beach finally closed, when it was finally over, uh, she moved her facilities for treating tubercular children from Manhattan Beach to what's now uh, the better known American Beach, uh, which would be started uh, by Abraham Lincoln Lewis of the Afro-American Insurance Company, uh, a little bit north of Jacksonville on Amelia Island. An historic marker in Jacksonville's Hannah Park, where Manhattan Beach used to be, reminds us of a thriving African-American beach community that no longer exists. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you missed any of the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum, I have great news. The entire conference is available online at myfloridahistory.org, including a special presentation by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, Florida has been a popular tourist destination for many years. Some historians have differing views on when exactly modern tourism began. Although some scholars point to an earlier 19th century origin for Florida tourism, historian David Nelson boldly claims that modern tourism began with the state's exhibit at Chicago's Century of Progress World's Fair in 1933. He bases his assertion on the nature of the Florida exhibits, the subsequent role of advertising and marketing in Florida tourism, and the rapid creation of roadside attractions to accommodate the new automobile tourists who flocked to the state. Traditionally, Florida tourism brought wealthy elites to the state for the winter months. Housed in grand hotels, tourists arrived aboard the Flagler and Plant Rail Lines and settled in for weeks of relaxing and social events. With the advent of the widespread automobile ownership, tourism increasingly included the middle class who set up their trailers and tents and campgrounds or took rooms in smaller hotels and soon motels. Floridians labeled these visitors 10-can tourists. 
Explanations vary as to the origin of the term, with some claiming it refers to the tin cans of food they brought with them, while others say it refers to the metal trailers they pulled behind their cars. Traveling on the new modern highways, including the Dixie Highway, US 1, 27, 41, and 17, made travel to the state easier and opened the interior of the peninsula to tourism. Nelson proposed that the Florida exhibit at the 1933 World's Fair shifted the state's marketing focus from agriculture to tourism and presented the state as modern, not southern, exotic and semi-tropical, a regionally neutral destination, a playground devoid of class, race, and unemployment lines, a place of fantasy and escape. And Connie, long before Disney brought his brand of fantasy to Florida, the state was consciously marketed as a great escape, as you said. Yes, this dreamland was initially created by the state, specifically the Florida Department of Agriculture, but by the end of the decade had been overtaken by private investors in roadside tourism. Nathan Mayo, Commissioner of Agriculture and the longest-serving state official in Florida history, recognized the opportunity that participation in the 1933 exposition presented. Designed to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the city of Chicago, the city hoped to replicate its success with the Columbian Exposition of 1894. However, rather than looking at the past for its inspiration, this exposition focused on the future and the importance of science, technology, and transportation in a century of progress. Initially, Florida's political leadership gave a tepid response to the invitation to participate in the exposition. But Nathan Mayo saw opportunity, and more importantly, he had access to funding that would not require legislative appropriation. Inspection fees collected by the Department of Agriculture surpassed costs for operating inspection sites. Mayo committed some of the surplus to creating and hosting the exposition as part of the state's agricultural marketing campaign. At the top of the list of goals for the exhibit was the besting of California's exhibit. By all accounts, Florida succeeded in showing up its principal competitor. How did Florida succeed so spectacularly over California? Well, first, location, location, location. Florida benefited from a prime location in the Court of States building where all state exhibits were housed. It was the first state exhibit visitors viewed, but location alone did not account for Florida's success at the fair. Florida successfully tied its exhibits with the goal of the fair by claiming to be pioneering the science of showmanship with a series of dioramas depicting various aspects of the state's history, culture, and progress. Dioramas were the 3D revolution of the 1930s. Dull exhibits of the past were transformed into three-dimensional, colorful landscapes populated with figures and buildings that told a story and invited exploration. Nelson compares the use of the diorama to the stereoscopic photography of the previous century. The series of dioramas were meticulously created to educate middle-class visitors to the fantasy of Florida as a year-round playground. Hunting, fishing, beaches, entertainment, even agriculture was presented as an exotic site for tourism. A live citrus grove was created for viewing, 
Muck was transported from the Everglades to create a river of grass. Florida fish swam in a giant aquarium, and visitors sipped fresh-squeezed Florida orange juice. The radio comic personality Will Rogers wrote that the visitors to the Century of Progress could visit two exhibits, the General Motors Building and the Florida Exhibit. If you want real oranges, get them at the Florida Exhibit, he wrote. If you want wax oranges, get them at the California Exhibit. The investment in the fair paid off. In 1934, Florida hotels were overbooked and tourists spent more than $500 million in the state. Even sales of citrus were up. Observers claimed that Florida was the first state to witness the full effect of an emerging feeling of optimism regarding the Great Depression. Between 1935 and 1939, entrepreneurs rushed to create more than 20 roadside attractions that would become the foundations of Florida's middle-class tourism history, including Wikiwachi, Cypress Gardens, and Marineland. Florida solidified its position as a tourism destination with its exhibit at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Funded and organized by private investors, the exhibit included some of the dioramas from the previous exhibit, but they were housed in a freestanding Spanish mission-style building, bringing together the old and new for the visitor eager for a Florida experience. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Lou Jim Gong was an innovative pioneer citrus grower, best known for developing a frost-resistant and sweet variety of Valencia orange. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History. Lou Jim Gong was a Chinese-American immigrant and an accomplished horticulturalist. In 1872, at the age of 15, Lou left China and arrived in San Francisco with nothing but a bolt of silk to sell. After moving to Massachusetts to work in a shoe factory, he met Fanny Burlingham, a Sunday school teacher and botanist. Fanny invited Lou to live with her and her family in Deland, Florida, where they'd purchased an orange grove. There, Lou Jim Gong used pollination techniques that he learned from his mother in China to develop a world-famous variety of citrus. Wei Zhenzhong is professor and head of archives and special collections at Olin Library at Rollins College in Orlando. He told me more about Lu Jim Gong. In China, he, he's very familiar with the agriculture work. And then around the uh, mid of 1880s, uh, so he was diagnosed with the tuberculosis. So he was told that he had one year to leave unless he moved to a warm climate. He chose to go back to, to China. However, uh, that trip turned out to be not a very pleasant experience because his uh, Christian beliefs no longer comply with the Chinese customs. And the family already arranged a marriage for him. Uh, he refused. 
So he, he escaped and his name was uh, uh, strike out of uh, the family genealogy. So he was eager to come back to the United States, but that turned out to be a very difficult task because uh, at that time, as you know, Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 is already in place. So uh, Fanny Burlingham had basically had to forge a document to prove that Liu Jingong is going to be a businessman going to open a store uh, in Massachusetts. Liu Jingong didn't go back to Massachusetts. Instead, to cure his tuberculosis, he headed for sunny DeLand, Florida, where his plant wizardry flourished in Fanny Burningham's orange grove. So Liu finally made his way back to the United States. This is around 1886. So he went directly to DeLand, Florida. Because Fanny uh, and uh, her sister, Cynthia Burlingham, they purchased an orange grove in Dillon. So that's how he ended up in Florida. So Lee became a U.S. citizen in 1887. Lee sort of became an adopted son of uh, Fanny Burlingham. He called her uh, mother Fanny. Lu Jim Gong would soon become known as the Citrus Wizard for developing a strain of orange that was resistant to frost, Weijin Zhang. Around mid of 1890s, you may know the Great Freeze, 1894-95, greatly impact the, the citrus industry. So 90-95% of all orange trees destroyed, died. So this event greatly motivated uh, Liu to improve uh, the citrus trees. So he crossed Florida Heart Lake uh, with the Mediterranean Suite to create a new strains of uh, orange was named up uh, himself, called Yu uh, Jingong Orange, which uh, won the uh, 1911 Silver Welder Award from American Pomological Society, which is the first time this was the award to a citrus. So that was a great honor. So uh, later, we also uh, experimented with other plants uh, in Florida, he became sort of famous uh, because his growth became a local tourist attraction. Fanny Burningham passed away in 1903, and Lu Gong inherited her property. He lived the next 22 years caring for the groves, accompanied only by his two horses and a pet rooster named March. Lu Gong died on June 3, 1925, and was buried in Oakdale Cemetery in DeLand, Florida. In 2000, Lu was recognized as a great Floridian by the Florida Department of State for his significant contributions to the citrus industry. Weijin Zhang has nominated Lu Jim Gong for inclusion in the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame several times, but as of today, he's not yet on the list. I feel that uh, Lu, uh, with his uh, contribution, he deserved to be uh, honored uh, to the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame. That was an uh, uh, initiative uh, start uh, in 1962. So this will be there, I guess, the 60 years uh, uh, running uh, this uh, uh, Florida Citrus uh, Hall of Fame. They had about, uh, of uh, last 60 years, they had about 186 uh, people honored to the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame. I feel that uh, Florida Citrus Hall of Fame, they should be uh, more inclusive. They should uh, recognize uh, the contributions made by all Floridians, include uh, minority members. Uh, this is my recommendation. Uh, I have uh, tried to nominate to the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame for the last few years. Um, he definitely deserved to be recognized for his contribution to, to Florida.
I hope that this will be the year that we can uh, finally recognize that, that he certainly belongs to the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame. If you would like to support Lou Jim Gong's induction in the Florida Citrus Hall of Fame, please go to floridacitrushalloffame.com slash nominate for more information. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.